Our gracious God and Father, we thank you so much that we can be together this morning and that you're a God who speaks, that you haven't left us alone in darkness and ignorance, but that you've made yourself clear in your word and in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us now to so understand your word that we might uh, be shaped by it. Help us to leave here this morning confident in who you are as our loving ruler and creator. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, I've been waking up all week uh, to the tune of Star Wars uh, being played on the piano by one of my kids, um, which feels like a very epic way to wake up in the morning. (laughs) I feel like you, you have to achieve something great when you hear the Star Wars theme to begin your morning is the very first thing that comes through your brain. Uh, but it is an epic piece of music that begins an epic story, isn't it? As that music kind of builds at the opening of Star Wars, you think something big is going to happen. This is a big story and it captures your senses and it draws you in to the story. And I think Genesis chapter 1 does that for us, not just for the book of Genesis, but for the whole Bible. Uh, it's like the opening score that grabs us, the rousing introduction that moves our senses, brings us into the story, helps us to see something big and important and grand is taking place. Uh, And at the very centre of this story that we're captured by and brought into is this personal, powerful creator God who made and rules and sustains all things uh, writer Gordon Wenham says this of chapter 1, he says, It's simple and majestic, dignified yet unaffected, profound and yet perfectly clear. Genesis 1 makes a superb introduction not only to the book of Genesis, but to the whole of Scripture. Uh, we've seen this very personal introduction, this powerful introduction, and in chapter 2 verse 4 we get the sense that the story proper is now about to start. How do we get that sense? It's there in the heading of verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Sorry, the uh, earth and the heavens. Very deliberate parallelism. That helps us to see that this is a heading. And it's a heading that's going to be repeated all throughout the book of Genesis. How, when you read this big, long book of Genesis, how do you know you reach a new section, a new story? It starts with that heading. This is the account of, right? And so over the next five years, as we work through the book of Genesis, I'm not sure, three, at least three more big series, right, through the book of Genesis, through the main stories of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They're the next three series in Genesis, in case you're wondering, between now and 2025, right? As you get to each section, these is the account of. These are the generations of, right? This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So we see that the story proper has begun. And so this isn't a continuation. This isn't a thinking, okay, we've got to the seventh day and now we continue. No, this is looking at the account of the heavens and the earth from like another camera angle. We've had the rousing introduction of the cosmos and now we focus in on this specific picture of God in the garden. God creating the world and creating a garden and creating a human in his image 
to tend and to care for the garden. The other change that we get in verse 4 is the introduction of that title for God, his name. In our Bibles, it's there in the capital letters, L-O-R-D, Lord. That is God's personal, promise-making and promise-keeping name. And this is the first time that it appears. It's a reminder that this is a personal God. This isn't the distant, deistic God who's kind of made things and then walked away and let's just see how it all unfolds. This is a personal, promise-making promise-keeping God who's making a very personal world. And so we're going to dig in and we're going to see this. Uh, God is still the main character, I'll have you know. So you still aren't the main character of the universe or even of your own life. God is. And he's still the main character of this narrative. And we're going to see as he creates humanity, we're going to see that humanity is glorious dust given glorious provision and glorious freedom by God. Glorious dust, glorious provision and glorious freedom are our three points this morning. The first then is glorious dust. Have a look with me from verses 5 to 7. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground. But streams come up, came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Uh, in chapter 1 verse 27 we heard that God made humanity in his own image. And as Jocelyn has already prayed, that Uh, That invests in humanity enormous value and dignity for every person made in the image of God. Uh, To be made in someone's image means to perform their tasks in the world. Humanity was placed in the world to rule and subdue it, where we read in chapter 1. And here we're told that man is going to be placed in the garden to care for it. And to work it, to be made in God's image gives us dignity, it gives us responsibility, it gives us capacity. Uh, To be made in God's image means that we're meant to reflect God's attitude in the world. We're to reflect God's character to the world. We're to mirror, we're to image God's glory in the world. And we do this through the faculties that he's given us, through our reason, through our conscience, through our responsibility. Uh, I I have that picture of the Governor-General being the Queen's image in Australia. David Hurley is meant to represent the Queen's interests, to reflect her character, to reflect her rule, in whatever sense, let's not open that can, right, In, in this country. And so that shapes the way he needs to conduct himself and the kind of things that he does and the way that he talks and the way that he cares for people and looks out for the interests of the Queen in this country as part of her rule. Humanity was made in God's image to rule the world under him, to reflect his glory, to to subdue and to care for and to rule over the world under God. But Genesis chapter 2 gives us this other picture of humanity. 
a very dependent, very fragile humanity formed of the dust of the earth with enormous dignity and value made in God's image, but in another sense, just dust, glorious dust, formed from the mud of the world. It's this picture of God, again, not being distant and removed, but the the potter whose fingers are in the clay, who's moulding it, who's, who's, you know that picture of a, a potter whose brain is kind of channeled through their fingers into the clay so exactly what they want comes from this this clump of clay something that I could never do right here's this picture of God whose fingers are very much into the clay to mold and to shape humanity in his image just as he intended very connected to the man that he makes who has great dignity and value but in another sense is just glorious dust. And it's not until God himself breathes the breath of life into the man that he can really reflect God's image in the world. John Calvin, in the profound 16th century kind of prose in which he writes, says, you would have to be excessively stupid to exult simply in your humanity, given you just come from clay and dust. So here is man placed in the garden to rule over God's world, to work the garden, to work the ground, and to relate to the world and to God as God intended, as God made. And once again, it's God who is the actor in this scene, It is God who is the main character and he is the one who not only gives life to the man but provides everything for his needs. Have a look at verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed, placed him in the garden. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon that winds through the land of Havilah where there is gold. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Uh, Have you ever been to like a a Thai restaurant or something where they have uh, a statue in the front window and each day they kind of make some food for their customers but they also make some food for the statue? Or have you ever been to a temple like in Indonesia or somewhere where you see them, uh, they, they come up and they keep presenting food to the gods? That's the picture that we get in all kinds of man-made religions, thinking that we need to appease the gods by providing for them, by bringing food to them. Do you notice here that the Bible is completely the other way around? That God doesn't make humanity and say, now bring me some grapes and fan me as I rule the world. No, God, the loving ruler and creator, says, let me supply your needs. Let me provide for you every kind of tree, every kind of plant, 
Let me provide with the abundance of water to make this world fruitful as you, as you image my glory to the world. Let me provide for your needs that you might serve me, that you might worship me, that you might know and love me as people made in my image. God is the one who perfectly provides for the needs of his world and for the needs of the man that he has placed in the garden to reflect his image, to work the garden and to walk with God in the cool of the evening. Glorious provision. That picture kind of, people get stuck in the details of trying to work out the geography of these rivers, right? And you can kind of lose your mind as you, as you try to work out the geography. And you've got to remember the kind of literature we're reading. This isn't meant to give, be a topographical geography lesson, right? This is a cosmic geography lesson. And while the, these rivers are actual real bodies of water, the, the point of it is that God sends these rivers out from his presence in Eden to supply the world. That life flows from where God is. Where God is especially present in the garden in a significant way with the man that he has made to reflect his image in the world, from there God gives life to the world. And if you fast forward to the very end of the Bible and to the book of Revelation and to the new creation, what do we see? That from where God is with his people, the river of life flows and the tree of life provides abundant provision of life for God's people forever and ever. And so between Genesis 2 and Revelation 22, it's a picture of will God provide for his people the life that they need to be sustained, to be cared for, to be fruitful? Right? And how is it that you're going to have access to the life that God gives, the life-giving water and the tree of life? Do you see that abundant provision that God says, here is the garden, here is the the life-giving water, here is the job that I have given you to do and here is the tree of life that you have continual access to. Here is everything that you need. It's an interesting picture too that when you look at Genesis chapter 2 that God doesn't make little deities. That people aren't divine, they are very much glorious dust. Which means that humanity is not made immortal. But in order to live and survive and to thrive they need God's ongoing provision. They need ongoing access to the tree of life for God to be sustaining them and giving them life, breath and everything. God here is seen as the perfect provider. The physical needs of his world are met. The spiritual needs of the world is met in relationship with God. And God provides even their relational needs that we'll see more of next week. Here we have this glorious dust man 
placed in a garden in relationship with their creator God, with everything that he needs. Have a look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. Here is the amazing freedom, the glorious freedom that man is given in the garden. You have everything that you need. What are the two specific trees that have been mentioned so far? The tree of life. You have unfettered access. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't eat from that one. So here in the midst of freedom, there is also responsibility. Here in the midst of perfect and glorious freedom, there are also boundaries. And this is before sin has entered into the world. So, friends, here is a picture that boundaries aren't a product of the fall. Boundaries don't come in because of the fall to to restrict our freedom, but God places loving boundaries around his creation to say, here is how life will work best. And so last week we talked about the fact that morality and meaning have been stitched into the way God has made the world. And here is the key thing to morality. The key thing to morality is listening to God's word. When God says, this is good, when God says, this is what will make life thrive for you, when God says, don't go near that, we as his creatures are meant to listen and to trust him and to know that here is the potter whose fingers are intimately involved in the clay and who wants us to thrive and wants us to grow and wants us to reflect his glory into the world. And that's why he gives commands. Not to stifle your freedom, not to squash your personality or your creativity, but to say, here are the conditions under which life will thrive and flourish. And it's exactly the same for you and me today. That life works best when we listen to our Creator who loves us. That you will flourish and thrive when you submit to His Word. Where He says, don't go near that. You need to listen to him. When he says, this is how I've made you and this is what I've given you, you need to trust him. And as we know from our own experience and as we see from the very next chapter, it's when we doubt God's goodness, when we distrust his order, when we distrust his promises, that's when the wheels fall off. That's when death and disease and disappointment take over in God's creation.
God made us to live in glorious freedom under his loving rule and care with everything we need, including loving boundaries that enables life to flourish and to thrive. You can eat of this tree of life as much as you want. But do not eat from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to eat of that tree is simply to say, I don't trust God's goodness. I'll decide what is right and wrong. I'll decide what is good and bad. I'll be God, not him. And there'll be more of that next week. Friends, this is a beautiful picture in Genesis chapter 2 of a world made by an intimately involved creator who is not distant but who has made this world exactly as he intended, who has made man to rule this world under him, to reflect his glory and his image, who has made us glorious dust and who has given us everything we need for life and godliness if we would trust him if we would listen to his word, if we will accept the loving boundaries that he places around our lives to give us dignity and value, to give us meaning and morality, to help us to thrive and to flourish. Between creation and new creation, we see mankind wrestling with a fallen world And in the middle of that story, the Lord Jesus steps into the world that he makes to die and to rise again in order that as glorious dust we might once again have unfettered access to the tree of life in the new creation. That once again we might be in the city of the living God walking with him in the cool of the evening, dependent upon him and living under his loving rule and care forever. Trusting his goodness, trusting his promises, knowing that from where he lives and dwells with his people, life-giving water flows. And it's by faith in the Lord Jesus that once again we can know the eternal provision of a loving and faithful God who longs for us to be free free from sin and death, free from the pain and disappointments of this life, to once again rule the world under him because of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you so much that you have made this world and you have made us to be your image, reflecting your glory. We pray that you would help us to live out that freedom, even imperfectly, this side of the fall, because we know that Jesus has died to redeem us and to once again give us unfettered access to the tree of life. Help us to trust the promise of Jesus that we drink, when we drink of the water of life, it will well up in us springs of eternal life. We thank you, our Father, for this great and glorious promise. 
We pray that you would help us to trust it. In Jesus' name. Amen.